Hurley was the first successful operational submarine, but there were others in the Civil War. The Alligator, and then one that even fewer have heard of. We'll find out more about that mystery submarine when we return with James Delgado, director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.scheduleonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, talking today with James Delgado, Executive Director of the Vancouver Maritime Museum. And we're talking about Civil War submarines. Uh, Jim, when uh, I wanted to mention Mike Palmer of the ECU History Department. The chair here says hello. He, uh, uh, I think, overlapped your time here briefly and uh, remembers your name and sends his greetings out. Mike's a great guy. He was actually there um, after I was there. Um, I knew him from his Navy days. That's what it is. That's, I knew there was a connection somewhere. Uh, well, we were talking in our first segment about the uh, the development, not not of the Hunley, the submarine people are familiar with when they study the Civil War, but of uh, Julius Kroll. Am I saying that right? Yes. Uh, Julius Kroll, uh, a Union inventor who had worked on a diving bell and other projects and tried to do something to help the Union Navy clear obstructions, but ends up uh, working uh, for a privately backed uh, enterprise to design some kind of submersible craft. And it was, you said, 1864, at which point he's working on this, now with the idea perhaps, if not for military uses, they'll uh, go look for pearls. Yes. Uh, so, so how does how does it work? Uh, tell, tell us. Well, the way the sub was designed was it was basically a very large diving bell 
it had hatches on the bottom that could be opened up at depth once the sub was pressurized on the inside. It's, today we call this a lockout dive chamber. Like Hunley, hand-cranked, this submarine was a pretty incredible and remarkable thing. Uh, we don't know much about it, or at least not from the records. There was a rudimentary plan that was done and a description of it that was authored by W.W.W. Wood, Chief Inspector of Ironclads and Chief Engineer of the U.S. Navy, because the Navy did take a look at Kroll's submarine. Wells was, in, was impressed, recommended it, but by the time Kroll was finished with his sub, the war was practically at an end, and the Navy saw no real use for it. It was completed just around the time of Antietam. So Kroll and his backers, unable to sell the sub to the Navy, as they had hoped, instead disassembled it, shipped it by steamboat down to Panama. It crossed the isthmus on the Panama Railroad and was reassembled in the spring of 1866, uh, excuse me, in the, I'm sorry, in the spring of 1867 by Kroll in Panama Bay. The sub was 36 feet long. It had about a 10-foot uh, diameter hull, and it was divided into three compartments, seawater ballast chambers that could be separately or, or universally flooded and then have the water expelled by compressed air, a compressed chamber to do that, but also a chamber, a working chamber in which the crew would work. The way that uh, the sub would operate, thanks to a couple of newspaper stories that tell us, is that Kroll and his crew handful of men would get into the sub, seal the hatches, flood, drop to the bottom, and they could go down to about 100, 110 feet. At depth, they would know from gauges just what the seawater pressure was, and Kroll would let air in from the compressed chamber to match the, the pressure of the ocean outside. At 103 feet, that's 46 pounds per square inch. You get to about 46, 47 pounds per square inch. That means when you open the hatches, the ocean doesn't flood in. It's matched. It's, it's all ambient pressure. And you can, on the bottom, literally reach down into a few inches of water to touch the seabed, gather pearls, or, as Kroll had initially hoped, to set charges, clear explosive devices, or set um, or, or saw or clear some sort of an obstruction to chop a chain. How, how do the well, people respond to pressure uh, like that? Well, that's the, that's the big problem. Uh, nobody understood what that did. Kroll's initial tests were in the East River, only down uh, you know, 20, 30 feet and they didn't stay down long enough to encounter the effects of what today we call the bends. But in Panama, they did. And interestingly enough, in September 1867, Julius Kroll died of what was referred to as the fever. An account of his sub's dives in 1869 in the Panama Press, reported in New York, talked about all of the crew coming down with fever and the sub being laid up in the cove of a small island off the coast of Panama City, about 75 miles out to sea. And that's the last record or reference we have to Kroll Submarine Explorer other than a 1902 article by a Civil War veteran, naval officer, who talked about the best subs built during the war. And of those subs, he said the two that stood out the most were the, the Hunley and Kroll's Explorer. But Kroll's Explorer had vanished. Um, as it now seems, looking at the accounts, Kroll and his men didn't suffer from fever. They suffered from the bends. Physicians didn't understand the bends. They didn't know what pressure would do to a human body. We now know that it creates all sorts of symptoms, which to a physician in the 1860s would have been identical to that of fever. Uh, delirium, swelling, pain in joints, uh, a number of things, including delirium and death. And that most likely means that Julius Kroll and the crew of the submarine explorer were the first modern victims of, of bends. Uh, or caisson disease, as it would soon be known within a few years of the submarine's invention. 
when they started working on the, the bridges that crossed both the the East River and Brooklyn Bridge or the Eads Bridge in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. So, so they something was happening to these people. They didn't know what what it was or how to counteract it. Well, they so. they had an idea that what was happening was the fever, but I think what ultimately happened in 1870 is they figured out that there was something more than fever, but they didn't know how to, de- to deal with it. They couldn't combat it. It wouldn't be the first time an invention is created that's technologically advanced but which outreaches humanity's ability to deal with it. That's the whole premise behind the novel Frankenstein. Uh, so rather than continue to use it, knowing that they had a sub with a fatal flaw, they just laid it up on this island in Panama and let it be, and that's where she would remain for over 130 years. And uh, at some point, you come into the story. Well, the submarine was never truly lost, but its identity was. From time to time, visitors in the Pearl Archipelago off the coast of Panama would report a strange craft appearing out of the water at low tide, a craft that for some was actually not a sub. They figured it was a boiler. Um, Others said, no, it was a submarine. But by the 1960s, it was viewed as a potential Japanese submarine from the Second World War, lost in an aborted attempt to attack the Panama Canal. When I sailed through the islands in 2001 on vacation, on a cultural and bird-watching trip, uh, I had an opportunity to either go bird-watching, which just is not my uh, idea of fun, or they said I could go to this beach, uh, being an underwater archaeologist, and wait and see if this, this thing appeared. When it did, I recognized immediately that it wasn't the Japanese two-man sub from the war, but something vastly different. And thanks to... Uh, colleagues around the world after I took measurements and photos and sent them around, particularly thanks to Richard Wills, Mark Reagan, Bob Schwemmer, and others. Uh, finally, Richard Wills said, uh, you know, there's this account from 1902 of a sub called Explorer by a guy named Kroll. He sent me a rudimentary drawing, and uh, it matched. And so we knew then that we had Julius Kroll's submarine Explorer, and it is the only, as of yet, found, located, you can touch it. Civil War submarine, other than the Hunley, built during the conflict, and in this case, the only Union-built Civil War boat to actually have been dived and worked. Now, is it still there? It is still there. It uh, shows up each day at low tide off of the, uh, the the beach of Isla San Telmo in the Pearl Archipelago, 75 miles out from Panama City on the Pacific side of the Bay of Panama. So could could one wade out to it or swim out to it, or would you have to take a at boat? At extreme low tide, you can walk out to it. Um, the best way to deal with it is at low tide or at high tide when we dive inside of it, because you can actually get in through the conning tower or through a hole in the stern underwater. And amazingly, all sorts of things are still there. The sub is remarkably intact, incredible when you think of it, having sat there in the tidal zone from 1869 until 2006. Who, who uh, owns the wreck? What are the legal ramifications of this? The submarine is actually owned as part of the natural, national patrimony of the government of Panama and working under permit from Panama's Instituto Nacional de Cultura. Um, we've been able to conduct three field seasons of archaeological work on the sub, documenting it, learning the secrets that Julius Kroll did not put down to paper, and um, measuring, and particularly in this last season, What's going on with the sub? How much longer will it last? What type of corrosion is happening? What's the effect of its immersion in the water? And coming up with a series of options for the submarine's future that we'll be presenting to the government of Panama in just a few months. 
That was going to be my next question. What about conservation? Is, is what's under Conservation way? is obviously difficult and expensive, but this is an incredible craft, like Hunley, far more sophisticated than we ever would have thought or imagined, and uh, a reminder, not just of, of the conflict of the Civil War, but also the incredible technological innovations of the period, and in this case, a submarine capable of working at depth, incredibly advanced, but for the, the, the problem with pressure, um, it would have made Julius Kroll, had he not died of the effects of the bends or the fever, because we won't really know for sure, had he not died, Kroll might very well have become the father of the modern submarine. And this is right about the era that Jules Verne is, is writing about this kind of thing. Well, it is, and I think the fact that Verne is writing about submarines is, uh, again, an indication of how the submarine is seen as yet another example of humanity's prowess, of how technology is not only creating problems, but also potentially solutions for the world's problems. And Verne deals with both of those issues rather strikingly in 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea. It has been suggested that Submarine Explorer was an inspiration for Verne, but that is, that's not the case. Verne, working in France, had access to engineers and others who were working in diving on submarines in his own waters, including Brutus de Villeroy, whose alligator would become the U.S. Navy's first commissioned submarine during the Civil War. No, that's just an un unfortunate link that's gotten a lot of people confused. Submarine explorer in Panama, or when she was in New York, was not an inspiration for Jules Verne. I see. That, that, yeah, that is sort of a natural conclusion one might jump to, just as one might assume it's a, a two-man Japanese uh, submarine, if, if one didn't know better. Yes, or the compressed air chamber with boiler stays reinforcing it so that the 200 pounds per square inch pressure wouldn't blow it out, and that confusing others into thinking that this was a boiler. That's right. The, uh, you mentioned when you circulated the, the data you collected to colleagues around the world, you, you were able to conclude quickly this was indeed the Explorer. And it reminded me just of a current controversy, uh, straight slightly away from the, uh, the Civil War, uh, here in eastern North Carolina regarding uh, the Blackbeard's ship, the pirate Blackbeard's uh, ship, the Queen Anne's Revenge. There's a wreck not not far from here that that some people have quite eagerly identified as the Queen Anne's Revenge, and others in the field are taking issue with uh, what they call the ruling theory method of, of coming up with a hypothesis and then saying this this is what we think the wreck is and it's up to everyone else to prove us wrong basically yes um, that's not the case here there's no controversy about this being the explorer no there's no controversy at all in fact um, it matches the plans to the inch the number of the features are the same and uh, one of the nice smoking guns and it's always difficult to play pin the name on the wreck but uh, in this case we know what it is um, not only because it matches the plans, but because the 1869 account in the New York Times, recording the Panama Echo and Herald's uh, account, states that she'd been working in the Bay of San Telmo and off the island of San Telmo had been laid up in a small cove. And that's exactly where this craft is. So, so, so all the pieces it's, it's fit. explore. That, that, that's not, uh, I don't suppose that happens very often where, where the pieces all fit so well. No, it, it doesn't happen all that often. And one thing to be said, we often do look for wrecks that have great historical associations and names, but the real importance of archaeology oftentimes is not reflected in those named wrecks, 
be they an explorer or a Queen Anne's Revenge or a Titanic, but rather in the nameless wrecks which in their excavation revealed details of everyday life, of the, the ebb and flow of, of the human experience, which when we link to it is a strong reminder of those who have gone before. And I, I think that, in that vicarious ability to understand the past and, and past lives, that's where archaeology has, is at its most powerful. That that, uh, that connection to the real, the the the, the past incarnate in the, the form of these historical objects, these wrecks, is, is something you can't duplicate in any other medium. No, it's not. And in particular, how many people would imagine, as I've had the chance to to actually be inside a Civil War submarine, particularly as it goes beneath the waves mm-hmm. um, and dives again. Of course, you're inside it in scuba gear. But uh, it's, it's an incredible experience. Or being able to walk up and touch something from the past just outside of uh, Greenville in Kinston is the CSS Noose, the remains of the Civil War. Um, you can Confederate ironclad people flock to that historic site to see those aged and burned timbers because it is a tangible link to the Civil War just as much as Fort Fisher is or any other Civil War site. And it is in that ability to see and to interact with the past that I think people have that. Uh, again, the vicarious ability to time travel. They do. I was just in Kinston uh, a few weekends ago to observe a, a reenactment, and one of the in the camp somebody had brought in a full-size mock-up of the Hunley with a, a cutaway so that you could see the interior. I think this may predate the actual recovery. It may have been based on the earlier uh, ideas of what it was like. But what struck me was uh, one of the uh, a couple uh, visitors were looking at it, and the woman kept asking her husband, "So, how big was the real one?" Uh, this is she was sure this was a scale model, and after two or three times, he made it clear. He said, "This this is it. This is how big the Hunley was. Uh, this is a submarine that's uh, you know just twenty feet long, maybe uh, thirty feet in it." No, less a little better than 30 feet long, three and a half feet in diameter. And yeah, and that's the power, again, of the past, too. It's one thing to look at a picture or to read an account. It's another to actually see it and to be there. And uh, for me, explorer, having read these accounts and then being where Julius Kroll was, uh, well... You, you can't beat that. that that's, that's, no, you, you, can't, you can't beat that at all. That's, that's one of the benefits of the job. It, it is, and it, uh, it it comes up in all manner. I, I teach public history here, and we discuss regularly the, the the importance of the object in conveying history in, in certain ways. There's a, a lot of controversy in the Civil War field now with the new Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois, which is magnificent in its presentation, but kind of thin on artifacts. And... Some people say, oh, that's how museums are these days. That uh, As long as the, the immersive experience is there, it doesn't matter if you have the real thing. And I a lot of us old-fashioned people would disagree. Well, I don't think it's just old-fashioned. I think you can go to a theme park, you can go to a film, you can go online, and while that's important and gives you a link, it's not the same as actually seeing it. For me, the Lincoln legacy comes across when you visit the sites, and for me in particular, years ago, when I was in the National Park Service, going to Harper's Ferry, where they were conserving the clothes he wore the night he was shot at Ford's Theater, and not seeing them in a glass case, but actually walking up, being able to hold Lincoln's coat in my, between my fingers, 
with, you know, gloves on in the proper museum environment, just the same. Looking at that blood-stained shirt with nothing separating us but, you know, a few inches of air connected me to, to Abraham Lincoln in a way that I never would have thought possible. So, ha, to the thought of just, uh, you know, of a museum without the real thing. Well, I, I'm certainly with you there. I would bet a large majority of our listeners are, too. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk more with James Delgado, the discoverer of the Civil War submarine explorer. We'll be back in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 